as we continue on our kind of look at the values of this church, I'm looking at values that I think are relevant to any local church, but we're talking a bit about TCC as well, so you have an idea of who we are as a church. Um, the value that I want to look at this morning is being an apostolic prophetic New Testament pattern church. It sounds like a mouthful because it would be much nicer if your value was just a nice one word value like last week, evangelism. But uh, it's also important for us to understand the details of who we are and we value being an apostolic prophetic New Testament pattern church. And so I'm going to talk about what that means this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather to hear your word, and I ask that you would speak to us through your word, and by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand, help us to get it, encourage us, Lord God, stir our hearts with faith, and cause us to find our meaning and our purpose in our life more and more in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Acts gives us a great picture of the early New Testament church, and uh, it's it's not the church in its uh, maturity, it's the church in its infancy. The interesting thing about the way that the believers got going was that they got going quickly and fruitfully, powerfully, and in many cases they were successful in spreading the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and onwards towards the ends of the earth. There are points already within the book of Acts and in Paul's letters where he refers to having reached to the kind of boundaries or borders of what they could actually get to. And there are other wonderful stories like the one of the Ethiopian eunuch who give us an idea that the gospel would have gone even further into North Africa and, uh, and so on, all within those first decades. And so I think we can look at the book of Acts and Paul's letters and we can get a very clear idea of a healthy functioning church. It might not be encumbered with all the trappings and ideas of man that were added in centuries later. And so by the time we stand in the year 2023, you could look at back, back at church history and say, wow, the church has committed some atrocities, there's been institutional abuse, there's been all kinds of stuff that isn't healthy. And I, I think most of that is because of people, not because of God's pattern for church. Yeah. So we've said before that a healthy church is not created by a healthy pattern, it's created by healthy people. But the healthy pattern certainly promotes the health of the church. And so that's why we look at the early church and we want to see how much of what is described is actually good for us to glean from. We want to look at those churches and see what made them strong. Was there some kind of a prescription? In other words, was it just descriptive or was there a prescriptive pattern? And I believe to some extent there definitely was prescription in how the church should be built. But many people speak about the church age beginning at Pentecost, and I agree that Pentecost is a defining moment. But while Pentecost may define a beginning, how the church started could sometimes be misleading. This is where we read it about the preaching at Pentecost in Acts 2 verse 38. To 2 verse 41 we read and Peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in one verse he really captures the whole process of how the church would be formed with new believers they would repent 
And they would be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They would receive forgiveness. Their forgiveness came by faith in Jesus and His atoning work. It didn't come through baptism. Baptism was a, a ritual or a rite, but it wasn't in itself the thing that saved the people. It was a sign that they were becoming followers of Jesus. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They emphasized right away, Peter emphasized the need for the Holy Spirit. This is why the disciples were waiting in the upper room, because Jesus said to them, don't go out until you receive power. And so we see that the early church was a model of an empowered people who were preaching repentance, baptizing new converts in the name of Jesus, and growing. And then he goes on, he says, For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So it doesn't tell us everything Peter said, but he reasoned and he argued and he testified and he persuaded people to turn to Christ. He did everything he could. And it, I love to combine that idea where it says he continued to exhort them with many other words he bore witness. And I think how when you, you as an evangelistically hearted person go to share your faith with someone else, you must just use words and exhort and bear witness. Just encourage them and testify to them about who Jesus is in your life. When you glorify Christ, when you, you're exalting Him, people can see this is a real relationship that you have with your Savior. And then God starts to minister and work. And you can explain the gospel as you understand it. And if your understanding isn't very good yet, then invest in learning. Come to church every Sunday and grow in your knowledge and your understanding of the gospel. But the thing that is misleading is the ease with which the first 3,000 were added. This is what's misleading about the Pentecost picture, is you would think that the church had it easy with evangelism because, look, Peter preached one sermon and 3,000 were added. Well, to some who are gung-ho for crusading in the open air, they think that's the only way evangelism should work. Get out there, preach in Africa, the masses will come. But actually, the success here was a supernatural signpost to mirror the giving of the law at Sinai. There was smoke and thunder at the top of the mountain. There were tongues of fire and the sound of rushing wind in the upper room. So you can see as the law was coming to Israel, what happened at Pentecost step by step mirrors it to replace it, to say this is the fulfillment, the real thing. And so the law came down, but the Spirit was poured out in the upper room. 3,000 died at Sinai because of the golden calf incident. 3,000 were saved in Jerusalem. So it wasn't Peter's preaching or his evangelistic anointing. It was the will of God. Yeah. And this is how you should share your faith with people. Not thinking I have to be eloquent or it's the, the kind of anointing that I feel. I believe there's an anointing every time you speak the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So you, you should expect God to work when you start to share the gospel. 
but you don't have to judge yourself by how anointed you feel. This was a sovereign moment. Preaching and proclaiming the gospel is God's plan for saving people. Yeah. Romans 10 verse 13 to 15. Let's look at Romans 10 verse 13 to 15. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So this passage of scripture tells us that we are to preach the gospel, to proclaim it, to testify of it, to explain it, to share it. And it's a, it's a, a way that people hear and it's in response to hearing that faith comes and people get saved. And so that's just what God's chosen. He's chosen that vehicle, that means of getting people saved. Very seldom does someone get saved just totally on their own in the middle of nowhere walking down the road. It happens. I think it's a cop-out when we as believers start rejoicing that Jesus appeared in a dream to a Muslim. What I mean is, are you celebrating because now it's no longer your responsibility to preach? Well, I know I, that's my guilty attitude. I said, wow, Jesus, why don't you go in the Middle East then and do it all and I'll just stay in my comfortable place. But someone has to be sent. That's what this passage tells us. They bring us of good news. And this is actually the point of the early church going from village to village, town to town, and ultimately planting churches. But initially, people going and sharing the faith. Immediately following the saving of the 3,000 at Pentecost, we see how the church began to fellowship. I share this because I want you to have an understanding of a, a New Testament church. When I say we want to be apostolic, prophetic, New Testament as a church, the apostolic is to go. We want to be a going people, ascending people. That's why we do regular missions to the bush. That's why we take the gospel to other parts of Madagascar. We're a, we're a going church apostolic in nature being sent some people are commissioned sometimes God calls a specific person to a specific place like Gavin and Rhoda who came to Madagascar in 1999 it was a sending from Peter Maritzburg in South Africa and arriving in Antananarivo a journey of faith but God was doing it to, to expand the work here not claiming that the gospel wasn't here there were hundreds of churches here and uh, God wanted one more. That's simple. Some people are planting churches in the city in the coming year. I celebrate. I think there are enough churches in Tana. There are not. If God wants one more, plant one more. And so that's the apostolic. The prophetic is that we're declaring the word of God. To prophesy is to speak for God. What has God commissioned us to speak? The gospel. He's made us an apostolic prophetic herald of the good news. We go and we speak and declare the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. We proclaim it in the nations. That includes what I said, Hector. It's like another nation right there. Those guys from the coast and all over. It's scary. But we, we have a close partner and friend who has planted a church in that area too, actually. And, uh, and the stories they tell are amazing. You would think it's the most unglamorous, scary, 
red zone you could go and plant a church in. I mean, the, the one guy who was planting, planted a church there, when his wife was pregnant because they didn't know when the baby would come, they had to move her to some other location in case the baby came in the middle of the night because in that area where he lived, it wasn't safe to walk 100 meters out of your house at night. Really wasn't. So you can think of the nations as being all around us. The nations, the ethnos, the different tribes, the different peoples, they're all over Madagascar. So even if you're Malagasy and you think of going to the nations, perhaps you just have to go down the road or maybe you have to go across the island. So an apostolic, new pro uh, apostolic prophetic New Testament church looks a bit like this. We'll read on in Acts 2 verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's this constant witness and worship and fellowship. There's this testifying of Jesus out there. People are being saved and they're being brought in because it says they're added to their number. So there's this idea that someone who gets saved is not just left there, like the Ethiopian eunuch, that's the exception to the rule. The Ethiopian eunuch was on the road somewhere, um, Philip spoke to him, he got saved because he, we believe because he also got baptized and then he headed on his way. It's fine, the Holy Spirit can take care of that. That's not the pattern, the normal pattern, what's normal is people are added to a community. And so they meet together day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Two kinds of meeting with believers. They meet corporately in an assembly, which is literally the meaning of the word ecclesia. So when Jesus said in Matthew 16 verse 18, on this rock I will build my church, he used the word ecclesia, which means the called out assembly. So it's not just that people were taken out of their sins, they were assembled together into the church. And so we see that idea that some people have where they only look at salvation as a me and Jesus situation. They only look at the universal church and they say, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. They don't understand that there's a body to belong to and that there's a community to fellowship within. But what we see in this birthing of the church is that they met together often, praising God. So there was worship, there was fellowship, there was witness. Those to me are some of the major components that we as a church need to have. We need to have the Word of God, we need to have, which was they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching, we need to have fellowship, we are a body together, we're friends, we have tea and coffee together. Those things are deeply ingrained values. We don't have tea and coffee just as an attractional item. It's not seeker-sensitive church. It's not that we want to make people who don't know Jesus come and have coffee with us. We want to have coffee with each other. Yes. We want to enjoy each other. We want to get to know one another. And then over time we become friends, we become family, we become brothers in arms. That's in the war because there's so many pictures of the church in the Word of God. The church is a bride, it's a body, 
it's an army, it's a household, it's a temple, it's a priesthood, it's a, it's a building, it's a family, and it's also a city. So, these give us some great pictures of the, the early church. The salvation of souls continues, but in all, all kinds of witnessing, there's public proclamation and personal testimony. And an important concept here is that one of being added to their number. It's this kind of being counted in. There's a company of believers or the church. The ecclesia, the called out ones who form this assembly. So here is the church, the ecclesia. It is what Jesus is building. And we can see the finished work in Revelation 21 as the new Jerusalem, the city that Abraham was looking for. You remember when you read about Abraham, it tells us that Abraham was looking for a city whose, with foundations, meaning it's a, it's a reality, whose architect and builder is God. So it's not an earthly city. He was looking for a, a heavenly city. He was already looking toward the new Jerusalem by faith. He was looking toward what Jesus is perfecting and what we will only see with Abraham one day. But we have a description of it in, uh, in, in Revelation 21. It's, it, the angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Cool, let's go see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's what the angel says. And then he showed the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You see the connection? It's a bit confusing to think of a bride or a wife as a city. But it's, this is a little bit beyond us because this is between God and His people. It's this covenant marriage that the Lamb of God enters into with His people and celebrates the consummation of the ages. And the church is that bride and also that city, that holy community of people. So we see in Revelation the city has 12 foundations and on them were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Revelation 21 verse 14 says, The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It's incredible how inspired scripture is. It all fits together when it's inspired by one author, God. The different writers' thoughts were steered by the Holy Spirit and they wrote down ideas that God was giving them and what John saw when he wrote this was a city with foundations. But John wasn't the author of the letter to the Hebrews, nor was the letter to the Hebrews author present when Abraham walked the earth, like four or something thousand years earlier, or two or three thousand years earlier, whenever it was. It's crazy. And they're all talking about cities with foundations and describing the foundation of that city. God is at work. He is building this church, His church, universal and local. In Ephesians, Paul writes that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In Ephesians 2 verse 19 we read, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So that's it. You're not drifting out there as a, as a sojourner, as a, an alien, a stranger. You, you're a pilgrim from the kingdom of heaven now. But you're a citizen with the saints and member of the household of God. There's that belonging again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We, our physical bodies, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The church ultimately is going to be a holy temple made up of all believers in which God's presence dwells. And that's why in the New Jerusalem there's no need for the sun because God himself is there and he is its light. It's mm -hmm. glorious stuff. Yeah. It's so far beyond what you could even imagine. When we read about the apostles and prophets here in Ephesians chapter 2 as being the foundation and from which we also speak of an apostolic prophetic New Testament church, now I'm changing or expanding the idea of apostolic and prophetic towards what scripture teaches that there's a, a, a heritage that we, we, we come from some roots and this is the long history of God's revelation to man. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. For what we see here are not Ephesians 4 ministry gifts. This apostles and prophets that forms the foundation of the church. These are references to the prophets of the Old Testament. To Elijah, characters like that, who effectively declared what was to come, the promises of God that were made in the Old Covenant, that are only fulfilled in Christ in the New Covenant. And so the church is actually at the, at the nexus, the meeting point of Christ, the cornerstone, and the foundation of the prophets from the Old Testament and the apostles, the twelve apostles whose names are written on the foundations in the New Jerusalem. And so we clearly see this is what's being spoken about here. That it's the linking of all the promises of the Old Testament with the fulfillment in Christ and then the, the, the ushering in of the church through the twelve apostles, not counting Judas. Um, just letting you know he didn't somehow get... Uh, purgatorized and redeemed. He was replaced and uh, by God's choosing early in, in, in the book of Acts. So for this reason, I see a major distinction between the office of the Old Testament prophet and a modern day prophetically gifted saint. You get prophecy today, but you don't have the Old Testament prophet. You have Ephesians 4 ministry gifts, which we'll look at in a moment. And similarly, there's a major distinction between an Ephesians 4 apostolic gift and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, whose names are on the foundations of this city. This is important, and I'll tell you why. We live in an age where people have grabbed hold of the Ephesians 4 gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and they have elevated some of those gifts way out of proportion to their duty to actually just serve the saints of God. And when the church is founded on apostles and prophets, lest not the Ephesians 4 apostles say the church is founded on him. It's, it's not. He is a servant in the church, just like the rest of the saints, with a very special gift that's very much needed for the equipping of the saints to do their works of service. So let's read about that in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 11 to 13. Jesus, when he ascended, he gave, the, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So these are given as gifts. They are given in the form of people to people. In other words, the gift is the person and it's being given to the church as a gift. 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Are we there yet? No. Right on, so. Um, we're not there yet. We haven't globally in the church attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To mature manhood, I don't know if the church will be mature manhood before I'm an old guy dying and falling off the grid. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's superlative. It's like the fullness of the stature, the, the whole measure of the fullness of the greatness of Christ. That doesn't happen till Jesus comes back. So what I'm arguing for here is the continuation of Ephesians 4 ministry gifts. That there is a kind of apostle, a kind of prophet, a kind of evangelist, a kind of pastor and teacher that are kind of, and I use this loose term, kind of, because I don't want to over um, define how that gift should work. Scripture gives us examples, but it doesn't actually set out a definition. It just says Jesus has given gifts to equip the saints for ministry. So for that reason, I look around and I pray and I say, God, who's got prophetic gifting? Who's got apostolic ministry? How can we team up as a church with people with that or people with an evangelistic heart or calling? And how do they equip the saints? And how do we bring them into our midst? And it's actually through apostolic partnership that this church was birthed. And Pete, in a sense, was playing this pivotal apostolic role of traveling to Madagascar, going out and seeing the kingdom opportunity, and then finding a saint called Gavin and saying, Gavin, get off your seat, horse, get off your parking place, and go on the great adventure with God. And plant a church and so we are we see an equipping taking place ascending taking place and apostolic ministry bearing fruit and so this church is born out of apostolic ministry when we set elders in office we look at ourselves as an eldership team and we think nepotism is a danger we don't want to just pick friends so we go and we look for people outside of the church to partner with you can carry an apostolic fathering heart for this church and come and ordain just like Paul, who when he had witnessed and shared his faith and brought many to Christ in an area, left Titus in Crete to put in order what remained to be put in order to appoint elders in every town. So the idea of even the way that you do your leadership appointment, there are biblical patterns that Paul followed and he claimed a great degree of understanding about how to do church. So, we can confidently say these gifts should be operating in the church, but not necessarily as a billboard-sized sign of a guy in an ice cream suit saying, I am Apostle so-and-so. <laughs> that is a distortion of how this gift works. It's a corruption of the gift. There is an apostolic gift, but it's not an egotistical man taking center stage for himself and claiming to be the foundation of a church. Actually, the guy in the ice cream suit who calls himself Apostle so-and-so is in danger because not even Paul called himself Apostle Paul. Yeah. 
if you look at all of his letters, he introduces himself as Paul, which is why I like to be called Kim. Because <laughs> there could be many Pauls, but there can only be as many Kims actually. Kim, not Pastor Kim. I don't mind if you call me Pastor, but I, I think it's a little weird. I understand the desire to show respect. But we weird it up a bit compared to other professions. Like, I don't go and say uh, to my other friend, how's an engineer Ken? <laughs> or engineer Pete, or you know, whatever your teacher so-and-so. You know, director Craig, or sorry, just manager, whatever. <laughs> so, you get my, my heart here. I'm just trying to show you that the, the church is comprised of different parts. Some of them are very instrumental in the birthing of the church, in the appointing of leadership. And Revelation shows us the, the consummation in chapter 21, but Revelation also shows us a completely different idea about church in Revelation chapter 2, where I'll read Revelation 2 verse 1. Jesus is appearing and speaking and says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's an interesting passage. I'm not going to unpack much of it, but I do want us to observe that we see the Spirit is speaking to the churches. So now it's not one church, universal New Jerusalem City of God church, it's many local churches, one in Ephesus, one in Laodicea, one over here, one over there, and the, the, the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to the churches and He's evaluating them based on their own personality. So this church is a local church and it's expected to have some flavor, some personality, some character. And some of that God wants to drive out of us and call us to repent from and other parts He would affirm. He would say, well done. And in some sense as a, an elder in this church, as one of the leaders, when I pray about the church I ask God, what is it that we're getting right? What is it that we're getting wrong? Where is it that we're faithful? Where is it that we're unfaithful? Because we want to understand what is the Spirit of God saying to the churches, to us personally, not to the one down the road. So they've got unique qualities, virtues, and failures. And the scariest thing is, it's a lampstand that can be removed. And so while the church has this potential to be an oasis of life, a lampstand shining, a city on a hill where the light goes into the distance and people can come and meet Jesus or even meet people from there who bring Jesus 
the gospel to them, that lampstand, that light could be extinguished. Jesus himself could say, enough, your season is done. And there are many churches that don't exist anymore. But what we see here too is that it's a body of believers in an area and that they're in it together. So the church is also very much a local thing in a specific geography. And it's that body that's addressed by the writer to the Hebrews when we read Hebrews 10 verse 24 and 25. Hebrews 10 verse 24 and 25 said, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there the writer to the Hebrews is saying, you should be meeting together. You should be encouraging one another. You should be stirring one another up to love and good works. You can't do that out there on your own. It's part of being a part of a local church. It's again the local church that is a place where believers are submitted to leaders. If you read Hebrews 13 verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It was amazing. I found the first true elder. I'd been in a church with a priest. Uh, I, I'd been in a charismatic church with a, a pastor. And then the third kind of major step of church life for me, I was in a, an independent kind of apostolic prophetic New Testament pattern church and the, the elders understood their role as leaders and I was a young student and one of the elders came to me and said have you thought about maybe not going home this vacation break but staying for some leaders training course would you not consider forsaking seeing your mom and dad for five more days this year and invest in the future God has for your life. Tough call, very heavy. And I actually prayed about it, weighed it up, and then I, as far as I can recall, I stayed for the training and the input because I was growing in my passion for the church and understanding that it's something that Jesus is actually building and that I could actually be part of growing up in that, in that thing. But, a real leader could actually interfere with your life and put a demand on you. Say, hey, you need to stop that, or you need to come and, you know, join a corporate fast, or you need to come to a meeting on a Friday night, even though it's your sacred family day. That's possible. Um, I try not to lead as a leader. I try not to issue commands or directives. I try to lead by invitation. I really think that all of what I'm talking about, skillful leadership understands that what we have is not conscripts but volunteers. What we have is brothers and family and friends, not servants and slaves of the leaders. So I understand my authority but also know how to propose it to you that you join. And that's what I'm trying to paint the picture of for you by showing you in scripture that there is a local church, it has leaders, and you do become very much a part of it. So there's a scriptural expectation that you are saved and then added to a local church where you are shepherded, loved, led, and fed, and where you mature. 
It's within the local church body that gifts operate to build one another up and where we spur one another on and where we grow into the unity of the faith and mature to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. What we see in the Bible is preaching and baptizing those who repent like Philip, but more typically but they're added to a local church and it's so normal that many of the apostles are simply addressing addressed to the I'm sorry, so many of the epistles, the letters that are written in the New Testament are simply addressed to a local church. And we do see that there's leadership too. I've quoted Philippians 1 verse 1 before. A letter Paul writes, he says to the Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So there's a picture of what Paul understood local church to be. Geographically gathered people who belong to a community in which there are also elders and deacons among them. This is what must be in order for the local church to be set up for success. This is why Paul gave instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, and that was his purpose in leaving Titus on Crete, um, in Crete, on Crete, whichever you prefer. The result, the result of this work is an autonomous local church where believers are growing in faith, holiness, and good deeds, and also experiencing some problems, usually. Like um, many of the New Testament churches were far from perfect. You want to see a great letter about the church, read Ephesians. You want to see a great model of the church in crisis, read 1 Corinthians. That's normal Christianity. In any event, the normal pattern is for believers to belong. And the lampstand could stand until Jesus comes back. But not many do. I'm nearly finished now. To summarize what we see happening in the New Testament early church is that people go with the gospel, they go out from the local church, they preach the good news. When enough people in an area turn to the Lord, elders are appointed, disciples grow together, mature as a local church family, they go out and win more people to Christ. Some mature and are called to go and plant a church. Some evangelize an area and plant a church. And I always add there and plant a church because if there isn't a church, there needs to be a church so people can gather. That's the New Testament pattern. And so someone once explained it to me like this, that the true fruit of an apple tree is an apple tree, not apples. The true fruit of an apple tree is an apple tree. And if you think about that, some churches build under the mentality that they just strengthen themselves and bear more and more fruit, get more and more people saved, more and more and more people get saved. Look how many apples we have. But the apple has within it the seed that when it dies in some other soil, it can grow up into another apple tree. And so the apple has to go out and it has to lay itself down somewhere and become a new apple tree. And then you see the true nature of church planting. The true fruit of an apple tree is another apple tree. And that other apple tree isn't somehow obscurely attached from the side to the original apple tree. It's not mother-daughter churches in the New Testament. It's churches that plant churches that plant churches. Do they work together? I hope so. Do they love one another? I hope so. How much do they cooperate? Scripture doesn't prescribe it. Did the Philippians and the Ephesians always go in projects together? I don't know. You don't really have to. You have to focus on what God's given you to do. 
And this is what God's given us to do, to act as the bastion of truth and live it out. I'm reading 1 Timothy 3 verse 14 to 16. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So in what Paul's writing, he describes the church as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then speaks about this mystery of godliness and Jesus, how he progressed. And I see the church at the same time, we're supposed to be growing up in our understanding, growing up in our actions, in our fruitfulness and in our mission. We carry a message from God. It's the gospel that's upholding the truth. We don't uphold our own identity or our traditions or our way of doing things or try and propagate another church that behaves just like this church in terms of like the style of music. We don't have to replicate ourselves. We have to replicate the church that Jesus is building. And so it's the values, the gospel, the kingdom, the word of God that we must multiply. We would like to see a church planted in every village, town and city, not for TCC, but for Jesus. Yeah. And in the years that lie ahead, I hope that we plant more churches. We've hardly planted any yet, but we continue and they are already planting other churches too. So we, I say hardly any yet, it's like five. We count some of the ones on the plateau, which I'm not really sure how much of a church they really are yet. We could beef up those numbers to double, but we don't need to brag about anything. It's not that we're interested in. We're interested in the name of Jesus being made famous everywhere. Amen. Could the band come up? Won't you stand and I'll pray for us. Lord Jesus, help us to believe in, to celebrate and delight in an apostolic, prophetic New Testament church. Whatever it is that you're building, Jesus, we want to be part of that. Your word says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, building anything that's not in accordance with what you're doing. And so help us, Lord Jesus, as we build our lives. I pray for each and every one of us here, that we would build our lives on the solid rock of you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. And that we would follow your word, come into your household and become fully fledged members citizens of your kingdom, saints in your temple for your glory. Amen.